0: This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts.
1: Welcome to session 11 on our series on Luke Acts. We're going to be looking at uh, Luke mostly in chapters 14 to 18. Uh, We might jump around a little bit, but... um, Our focus today is going to be talking about uh, discipleship to Yeshua and specifically the cost of discipleship. So the last two sessions we've been focusing on the kingdom of God and I've been arguing that when Yeshua proclaimed the kingdom he was talking about the messianic era, the final restoration of Israel and even the defeat of Rome. Uh, And this This is, by the way, what the Jewish people were expecting in those days. Uh, So this was in keeping with Jewish expectations. However, Yeshua's teaching on the kingdom was also radically counterintuitive and at odds with popular Jewish expectations. Uh, We've seen in bits and pieces throughout Luke how Yeshua comes down hard against the zealot type of mentality, right? This idea that we can usher in the kingdom of God through violence, through aggression. And uh, so the Beatitudes, for example, extolling lowliness and humility and even, uh, even suffering as opposed to um, this uh, arrogant sort of attitude. Uh, the, the, the entire Sermon on the Plain or Sermon on the Mount, uh, we see this, you know, Yeshua is teaching against retaliation and and uh, that sort of thing. So Yeshua is offering a very uh, a radically different uh, uh, program for how to uh, bring about this kingdom. Right. So even though the content of the kingdom coincided more or less with common Jewish expectations, the means of attaining that kingdom was drastically different in Yeshua's teaching. Yeshua's teaching a very different approach. Um, instead of power, prestige, and military aggression, Yeshua calls his followers to embrace repentance, humility, and even suffering. I want us to turn back quickly to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn there? Um, these verses uh, take place just before the transfiguration and shortly before Yeshua begins his long final ascent to Jerusalem in, in Luke 9.51. Uh, so this, this is kind of at the end of one phase of Yeshua's ministry just before he embarks on this, this long trip to Jerusalem that characterizes the majority of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, So if we look at uh, Luke 9, verses 18 to 27, it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Let's take a look at this passage here on the screen. So, and he charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So, notice notice what's going on here. First, um, the disciples, specifically Peter, makes a correct identification of who Yeshua is. Yeshua is the Messiah, Peter answers correctly, right? But immediately Yeshua has to clarify what the role of Messiah is, right? Yeshua has to clarify the role of Messiah entails suffering, rejection and suffering. I mean, this must have seemed seemed very counterintuitive to Peter, right? He's just identified Yeshua as the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is the king. The Messiah is the one who comes and destroys Rome. He's the one who you know, uh, redeems Israel and ushers in Israel's golden era, and instead Yeshua has to reorient uh, what this expectation entails. It's it's not it's not going to be quite like that. It's going to actually entail suffering, and then it goes on. The uh, more than just this being the role of Messiah, the call is for all who follow Messiah to embrace this same path. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And it goes on. So the point is that instead of power, prestige, military aggression, Yeshua's calling his followers to follow him, to imitate him in this path of lowliness and suffering. And uh, that's going to be our theme that we're going to focus on today. All right. So to start off, let's go to Luke chapter 14 and look at this parable that Yeshua tells of the banquet. So if someone has uh, their Bible and is willing to read, um, would someone be willing to read this passage? Luke 14, 15 to 24.
2: Okay, I can read it.
1: Sure, that'd be great.
2: Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 15. And when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner, at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind in the lanes. And the slave said, Master, what what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner.
1: Great, hey, thank you. All right, so this parable, uh, we have, it, it, the setting is Yeshua is actually at a dinner being hosted by a leader of the Pharisees. If you go back to earlier in chapter 14, um, uh, the first verse, he went to dine at a house of the ruler of a ruler of the Pharisees. And this uh prompts a number of teachings related to banquets and things like that. And so uh this this comes in the middle of that setting, right? Uh this uh person, it doesn't say who, he butts in and says, uh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread at the kingdom of God. <laughs> and then Yeshua tells this parable, right? Uh, So one traditional interpretation of this parable is that this parable is talking about how the Jews are going to be replaced by the Gentile church. Right, So those who are invited are the Jews, and they all made excuses and didn't accept the message of the banquet, of the invitation. And so so what is the, the, the master says? Uh, None of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So all the Jews have been excluded, and instead uh, they go out to the highways and byways and bring in all the stragglers. And well, that's the Gentiles, of course, right? So now, now the kingdom is all about the Gentiles and the Jews are excluded. <laughs> that's one traditional interpretation. Uh, I think that is a very incorrect interpretation. And I think there is ample evidence throughout Luke and Acts that Luke does not consider the Jewish people to have been cast off. Luke is not preaching replacement theology here. Uh, and Yeshua wasn't either. So, so what's this talking about? Well, I think the point is not so much trying to identify who are the people who are first invited and who are the people who are invited next. The, the point is that uh, throughout this parable, each of these different people get an invitation at some point, right? So so the original people with in- invitations, well, you know, other people get invitations then later and uh, they come right away. the The point here is the the importance of responding to the call to repentance right and this is this is related to uh what this guy says at the beginning blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of god uh yeshua doesn't say no that's not true in fact he says the point is this is specifying well who are those people going to be and one theme that we see and we we've, we've seen this in in several places in luke is that The religious authorities are rejecting Yeshua's message. But the people who are receiving it happen to be largely the poor, right? And we saw this back in Luke chapter 4 in this paradigmatic passage when Yeshua comes to the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and the message is that I have been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, right? So it's the poor that are the immediate beneficiaries of Yeshua's message. So it's not Jews versus Gentiles. It's uh, maybe we could say it's Jews and other Jews. (laughs) There's uh, it's the perhaps the religious leaders versus the commoners more more than that. But but at the same time, I think this is more a general statement about about the danger of rejecting Yeshua's call to discipleship and pursuing the kingdom for the, for the sake of material interests, right? And, and this is the big thing that that Yeshua wants to highlight and that he will highlight right away in the next session, is that it's so easy for these other things to become a distraction from what is really important, right? I mean, look at the lame excuses these people bring up, <laughs> Right? uh i bought a field and i have to go out and see it so i can't come to the banquet right? i mean couldn't you wait until later to go and look at the field uh you know i just bought five yoke of ox and i have to examine them yeah and couldn't that wait uh, maybe maybe the one the guy who just married a wife uh has a better excuse maybe but again if if he knew this banquet was coming up why did he intentionally plan the wedding, to you know, like it's it's just kind of fishy. All these excuses, they're kind of fishy. And the point is that none of these should be good enough excuses. Uh, and it's this is the danger of allowing these uh, material interests to distract us or uh, to dissuade us from pursuing and responding to this call to discipleship. I think that becomes clear. As we go into the next section. Uh, So let's take a look now at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. So again, I'll get a volunteer to read these verses.
3: I can read those.
1: Sure, that'd be great. Thanks.
3: Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after a delegation and ask conditions of peace. So, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.
1: Great, thank you. All right, so these these verses, um, these are strong words, aren't they? Following Yeshua means renouncing everything and everyone for his sake, right? Um, so if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, uh, you know, at, at first glance, that's, that seems kind of strange because aren't we supposed to love one another, right? Uh, doesn't the Bible say to love your neighbor and shouldn't that include your father, mother, wife, and children, etc.? So, uh, as we see sometimes in, in Hebrew, these terms love and hate are used uh, not necessarily the way we use them in English, but more in terms of degree, right? To hate someone. Uh, like it talks about how Jacob loved Rachel, but hated Leah. And the, the point is not that he couldn't stand Leah whatsoever. It's that he preferred Rachel over Leah. So this is about preference, right? Where Where is our priority? Our, our, we have to uh, love Yeshua uh, far greater than we love these other people. I, I mean, still, it doesn't that doesn't take away the shock uh, of this passage right I, and i think there's there's supposed to be a bit of shock value here right we're supposed to we're supposed to uh to to read this and be like wow this is a a tall order right uh we're supposed to set aside our natural affiliations for our family members uh those who are close to us um none of those matter as much as Yeshua. Uh, this is this is a very strong claim. And even, even his own life, right? Even our own life stands below our commitment and our love for Yeshua. Then Yeshua tells these two parables, right? First, there's the parable of a guy building a tower, and then the parable of a king waging war. And in both cases, Uh, You know, these guys have to sit down and think about, you know, how is this going to play out? You don't just dive into a big project like that, a big endeavor, without uh, counting the cost, right, so to speak. Uh, At the same time, I, I don't think the point of these parables is that we're supposed to count the cost as though we need to make sure we are able to make an adequate sacrifice to ensure discipleship. And if we can't make that sacrifice, then we shouldn't bother being a disciple. I don't think that's the message issue is trying to get across here, right? I mean, the previous passage was just uh, saying that we shouldn't come up with excuses for uh, not responding to the call of discipleship. Uh, the, and and especially with the second parable. Uh, in the first one, you know, it's it's... It's maybe about, you know, can we can we afford to follow Yeshua? Well, the second one, who's the king uh, against which we're fighting here? Uh, you know, one way of reading this parable is that the king with greater forces is God himself. So the question for this parable is, can we afford to refuse the call to discipleship? It's not, let's count the cost and see if I can actually commit to this or not. It's, is it viable for you to not, right? If not, well, the other is yet a great way off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Um, the point is, uh, and this is what Yeshua underscores, right? Beginning and end. Any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That, that's And that's strong. Uh, in... In Greek, it's it's like, so, uh, whoever of you does not apotacites, like uh, to say goodbye, <laughs> bid farewell to everything uh, of himself that, uh, all his belongings, right? All his possessions, everything that is, is part of him, right? Um, so there's this sense of giving up our worldly possessions, giving up our... Uh, even family members, even giving up our own lives. Uh, is, this, is, this is the cost of discipleship. It's, it's giving up everything to follow Yeshua. That's a tall order. Um, yeah. So, possessions, one of the things that obviously includes is money. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, there's several passages here we're going to look at now that deal with Yeshua's teachings about money and how that's related to discipleship. Let's look first at Luke 16, verses 1 to 15. Uh, Actually, we'll read just up to verse 13. So if someone has that, would you be willing to read Luke 16, verses 1 to 13? I can do that. Sure, that'd be great, Deborah.
2: So 16,
0: verse 1?
1: Yep, 1 to 13.
0: Speaking to the Talmudim, Yeshua said, There was a wealthy man who employed a general manager. Charges were brought to him that his manager was squandering his resources. So he summoned him and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in your accounts, for you can no longer be manager. What can I do? Or what am I to do, said the manager to himself. My boss is firing me. I'm not strong enough to dig dishes, and I'm ashamed to go begging. Aha, I know what I'll do something that will make people welcome me into their homes after I've lost my job here. So, after making appointments with each of his employer's debtors, he said to the first, How much do you owe my boss? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. Take your note back, he told him. Now quickly, sit down and write one for four hundred. To the next, he said, And you, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Take your note back and write one for 800. And the employer of this dishonest manager applauded him for acting so shrewdly. For the worldly have more sechel than those who have received the light in dealing with their own kind of people. This doesn't have the word for sechel here.
1: Uh, sechel is like um, shrewdness or wisdom.
0: Okay. Now what I say to you is this. Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves, so that when it gives out, you may be welcomed into the eternal home. Someone who is trustworthy in a small matter matter, is also trustworthy in large ones, and someone who is dishonest in a small matter is also dishonest in large ones. So if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who is going to trust you with the real thing? And if you haven't been trustworthy with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what ought to belong to you? No servant can be slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money.
1: Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Yeah, Stern likes to throw in a little Hebrew and Yiddish terms here and there <laughs> in his translation. So, uh, yeah, in uh, in Greek, it's the word phronimos, um, so that the the manager or the steward exhibits this tr- quality of phron- phronimos, uh, shrewdness, or uh, uh, smarts, really, right? Okay. So this is uh, an interesting parable isn't it uh, <laughs> there's been actually a lot of different takes on this and interpretations uh, i think one thing that troubles a lot of people about this parable is it's talking about a manager who is dishonor dishonest right uh he is uh squandering possessions for his master and uh he uh is guilty of embezzlement, right? And yet, this guy is, it seems, Yeshua is putting him as a model for how we are supposed to behave. So, how does that work? How can this uh, dishonest uh, thief be a model that we're supposed to emulate? Well, I think this is one of the things about parables. Uh, parables are different than an allegory, right? Uh, in an allegory, you have uh, an extended, uh, an allegory is an extended metaphor, right? So you've got different characters that represent different traits or different people or or whatever it may be. And you can kind of see that different elements in the allegory representing different things. And there's there's a stronger correspondence. A parable is more like a sermon illustration. It's a concise story that's meant to get the point across, right? It is not, uh, there is not a one-to-one correspondence for every single element in the parable. So I'm going to tell you what my take on this parable is. Um, If others have a different take, feel free to, to jump in in just a moment here. But Basically, this is, this is meant to be an illustration of what money, uh, how, how, how we as believers are supposed to, the attitude we're supposed to have towards money, right? So in this story, there's this uh, rich guy who, uh, you know, he's a wealthy landowner, whatever, and he has this, this steward who's in charge of all his affairs, and the steward is caught being dishonest or whatever and gets fired. Well, he has this narrow window of time between when the, the, when the boss says you're fired and when he has to bring in all his books and give an account for, for uh, his, of his management. Right. And so all the, all the rich guy's clients don't know yet that this guy has been fired. And so he's able to cook the books in their favor and, uh, as a As a means of trying to uh, get favor in their eyes so that when he's no longer employed, they'll be be nice to him. So this is supposed to be uh, you know kind of like this this brief window of time between when the guy receives the notice that he's fired and when he actually hands in the books. That's meant to be a snapshot of our life, right? So this guy, he's he's responsible for all this money, but it's not really his. So he can be really generous with it when he knows that his time is limited. In a sense, that's the attitude we sh- we ought to have towards money because we know that our time is limited and we know that the resources that we have are not really ours. God has given them to us, right? And so... This life is the time that we have to be generous with that. There, there's another parable Yeshua tells. Uh, that's in uh, Luke chapter 12. Uh, Yeshua tells this parable of the guy who, uh, this, this rich man who he has an abundant crop, and he's like, oh no, what am I going to do with all this? I know, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then uh, God says to him, you fool. You know this this night, your life is going to be taken from you, and then who will get all your riches? The point is, you can't take it with you, right? You can't act as though this is all yours, and it's like permanently yours somehow, because you know, the day's going to come when you're going to die, and you have to give it all up to the next guy. And so the point of this parable is that since you can't take it with you, might as well be generous with it that's you know this is this is the opportunity that we have to use this wealth that doesn't belong to us and be generous with it for for good deeds for charity for giving to those who are poor and those who are in need and so so that he he concludes um the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light right so so this guy i mean this guy is not a nice uh, uh, an ethical man right in the story the this this steward this this manager he's not he's not an ethical man but even even these th- this uh, son of the world <laughs> is has a better sense of the the need for using money to ensure a, a future, right? And Yeshua says, that's how we ought to be. We ought to be, but, but in our case, the future we're ensuring is not here on earth. It's a future reward in the world to come. Make friends for yourselves by means of, and then it, in Greek, it uses this, this phrase, um, un, unrighteous mammon, uh, wealth, mamona. Uh, so that when it fails, because the day will come when, you know, we'll die and it, it, we won't be able to take it with us. They may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The they here being a circumlocution for God. God will receive us into the eternal dwellings. Um, and so, you know, and then he uses this phrase unrighteous mammon again. And then at the end, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Or money. All right. Um, any other thoughts on this parable uh, before we move on here? Does that Does that interpretation make sense? Or has anyone heard any anything different?
4: That sounds good to me, Ben. I think I think you've got a good, a good take on that. I was I was just thinking that um, you know you said earlier about um, Yeshua using the word you know hate in in the earlier passage, and and um, explaining that you know it it isn't quite that, but but it at the same time there is some shock value. I'm wondering if maybe he's telling this parable too, and by telling it. Uh, as you know the main character being a bit of a, a rascal who's who who becomes the hero i mean we're, we're still telling the story today right and and it catches our attention we remember it so maybe that's one of the reasons that's that's the hero story um right it's, so it's, we remember right and there's some shock value as well and it kind of there's some dissonance that that keeps us chewing on it right and we don't just it doesn't just kind of um, become a
1: forgettable story, right? Well, that's a good point. Yeah, and it, it kind of it's. I think the conclusion is a bit of a, a kal Homer argument, right? From yeah. a lesser to the greater, right? If if uh, a dishonest scoundrel kind of person is able to uh, have a shrewd attitudes toward attitude towards money, uh, how much more so ought those who are righteous have? Uh, proper attitude towards money and the way it relates to the world to come.
4: Right, yeah, like the unrighteous judge right. granting justice to the uh, to the widow. Right. Yeah. How yeah. much more will I? Our... Yeah. So he does
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Exactly.
0: I hadn't heard it explained that way before, so I appreciated that because I've always thought like. How come? How come um, they're, they're praising this guy who um, is dishonest? So right. I, that's helpful.
1: All right. Yeah. So the bottom line of the parable is that our, our stance towards money in this life ought to be rather open handed. Right. It, it's not uh, it's not something that belongs to us. It's, it's something that we're just stewards of, right? And, and Yeshua says, uh, if you have not been faithful in, in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Or if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So in this life, everything we have, we're just stewards of, right? We're, none of it truly belongs to us. And the proof of that is when we die, we don't take it with us. But what, is it, what does it mean, that which is your own? This is talking about reward in the world to come, right? How, how, why would God grant us a reward in the world to come if we were unable to be good stewards of what he gave us here on earth? So, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of the take-home thing, is we have to have that open-handed attitude towards money that we're stewarding it for God, but uh, and that gives us a freedom to be generous with it, right?
5: I just wanted to say, Ben, that uh, I I was thinking back to something I was reading this morning in Ecclesiastes 5, uh, verse 15. He says, uh, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall he take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Mm -hmm. So again, going with the theme, uh, as in Job, it says the same thing, it's that uh, what is gained in this life doesn't go to the next right as far as mammon right or worldly possessions
1: yeah that's good yeah yeah so yeah that's that stuff we can take with us but what we can take with us is the uh these good deeds that we do right (laughs) and like uh These friends that the guy made by being generous, right? These are represent like uh, the good things that we do for others, so uh, I I heard someone once explain it. uh, It's kind of like in heaven each of us have this bank account of the and, and every time you for example give to the poor you're accruing more funds in that bank account in heaven and that's what you get to enjoy in the world to come. Uh, so the the money that we have here, we don't take with us, but the reward that is there, that's what we get, uh, get to enjoy. All right. So I want to jump ahead a little bit uh, because while we're on the topic of money, there's a couple other passages that I think are good to good to touch on together. So let's jump forward to Luke chapter 18, and we're gonna look at this story of the the rich ruler. So if I could get someone to read again, uh, let's do, uh, oh, sorry?
5: Just volunteering to read.
1: Sure, that'd be perfect. So yeah, if you want to read uh, verses 18 to 30 of Luke chapter 18.
5: And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Yeshua said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Yeshua heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Yeshua, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal
1: life. Great. Thank you. All right, so, um, this is another one of those hard-hitting kinds of passages. Uh, Has anyone ever felt, uh, um, is there something unsettling about what Yeshua says here? You know, it's, uh, Kind of begs the question. Is it necessary for followers of Yeshua to actually sell everything and give the money to the poor in order to Be a follower of Yeshua It's uh this is one of those passages that can kind of make you feel guilty sometimes. Maybe uh, I want to I want to just step back for a second We'll come back to look at this passage more specifically but first just a quick snapshot of some of the different things that Yeshua says about money in the gospel of luke so we already saw in the beatitudes in luke luke also adds these woes right woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation luke 12 take care and be on your guard against all greed this word in greek is pleonexia Uh, literally it means um like wanting more Uh, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then right after that, Yeshua tells that parable about the rich fool who wanted to build the bigger barns. And then he, uh, Yeshua denounces him as the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then we have this saying from Luke 12, 32 to 34, um, It's Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then Luke 14, the verse we saw before, any one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So the, these are some uh, hard-hitting verses. And it raises the question, is it possible, is it possible to be wealthy and follow Yeshua? I think the obvious answer is yes. If not, all of us here tonight would be in big trouble. Uh, any middle class person in North America is incredibly wealthy compared to the vast majority of people in Yeshua's days. And the vast majority of people not only on earth today, but throughout human history. I mean, the standard of living we have today in North America is, is uh, incredible. So we are among the very wealthy of the world. And that's not something to be proud or ashamed of. It's, it's, it's a fact. It's a, that's where God has placed us. Uh, Also, if you, uh, this was a passage we skipped over, but if you look at Luke eight verses one to three, it describes these, these uh, several wealthy women who followed Yeshua and supported him out of their means. Uh, It was thanks to their wealth that Yeshua was able to do his ministry uninhibited. Uh, I think most people don't realize that Yeshua lived off of support from uh, wealthy patrons. Uh, uh, In this case, it was these women that Luke highlights as being uh, his supporters. So I don't think we can take what Yeshua says to the rich man as a blanket c- commandment that we all are supposed to follow literally, that we're all supposed to literally sell our houses and all our belongings, give everything to the poor, uh, and, th- and then what, right? Like, wh- how would that work, practically speaking? In context, I think Yeshua is trying to teach the man about what it means to love God. Uh, let's look at a couple passages that are related to this. So uh, this question, Yeshua it is asked this question by the ruler in, in verse 18. Ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not the first time Yeshua has been asked this question in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we see that uh, come up as well in Luke chapter 10, verse Starting in verse 25, this is uh, leading up to the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's just take a quick look at these two passages side by side. In Luke 10, 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Compare that with our passage in Luke 18. A ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So they're asking the same question. Note what Yeshua's answer is. In both cases, Yeshua points him to the Torah. He said to him, what is written in the Torah? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The two great commandments, right? Love God, love neighbor. In this case, in Luke 18, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Right. So both cases, Yeshua is asked the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in both cases, Yeshua responds, follow Torah. It's an interesting response. (laughs) So note that all the commandments that Yeshua points to in the story of the rich young ruler, we've got do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. All of these come from the same place in the Torah, right? These are all part of the Ten Commandments. And these are all from the second half-ish of the Ten Commandments, right? So from Commandment 5 down to Commandment 9. All of these pertain to loving one's neighbor. Right? And then uh, the guy says, all these I kept from my youth. And then Yeshua says, one thing you still lack. And he goes on to tell him about selling it to the poor. I want to suggest that what Yeshua says he lacks is not how to love your neighbor. According to the ruler, he's kept all those commandments fine. He, he has no problem with loving his neighbor. But Yeshua recognizes There's something about loving God that he's missed. So it's interesting when you compare these two passages, both of them center around these two commandments, loving God and loving his neighbor, loving one's neighbor, right? The passage about the lawyer, Yeshua goes on to expound on what it means to love one's neighbor. That's when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this passage with the rich rich young ruler, he goes on to expound on what it means to uh, love God, right? So here he expounds on the second commandment. Here he expounds on the first commandment of these two great commandments. And Yeshua says that this this one thing, one thing is lacking, right? Um, one thing you still lack. And uh, some have suggested that this is an allusion to the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And what immediately follows, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. So in other words, that one thing that this guy lacks is the commandment to love God. He is, he's deficient in what it means to love God. If you go back to uh, Luke chapter 10, where we've got this story of the the Good Samaritan immediately after the story of the Good Samaritan is the story of Mary and Martha. Now do I have that here let me let me pull that up. Um, so in Luke 10 thirty eight to forty two this is right after right after the Good Samaritan. As they were on their way, Yeshua entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Um, And, you know, she went up to him and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. That's almost exactly what Yeshua says to the the rich young ruler, right? One thing is lacking. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So it's, it's, I think it's significant that this passage comes right after the lawyer has, has said the two great commandments are love God and love your neighbor. What was Martha good at in this passage? She was good at loving her neighbor. What was Mary epitomizing loving God, right? So, so they're both epitomizing uh, part of each of these two great commandments. And, Yeshua tells Martha what she's lacking is that that one thing, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart. So it's loving God that uh, that he's exhorting Martha about in this case. And the same with the rich young ruler. It's loving God that he is deficient in. Uh, and by the way, these are not the only places that Yeshua presents the Torah as Life-giving. If you look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, let's pull that up here. Um, we won't read this whole thing, but uh, there's this rich man, and there's this poor guy named Lazarus, and they both die, and uh, the poor man, uh, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, but the rich man is in Gehenna, in Ave Hades in Greek. Uh, being in torment. And and so what does is, what is the rich man uh, say? He, he summons Abraham and, and says to send Lazarus back from the dead to go to his family, uh, his, his brothers, and to warn them so that they don't have to come to this place of torment. And what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Right, and and according to Abraham, that should be sufficient. If they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Of course, the irony is that so exactly what happened with Yeshua. Yeshua rose from the dead, and uh, that didn't convince anyone. So, in in this story, Abraham makes clear that the Torah and the prophets ought to be enough. To bring life, that ought to be enough to avoid having to go to this place of torment, right? Uh, just by following Moses and the prophets, and of course, what are the two uh, the two great commandments that Yeshua emphasizes is loving God and loving your neighbor. Those are precisely the two commandments that are lacking in the rich man's life, right? So this is this parable is kind of like a combination of the the lawyer and the Good Samaritan parable and the rich man, the rich young ruler story, right? In this case, the rich man fails in both loving God by being generous with his money and in loving his neighbor by taking care of Lazarus. And it was his disobedience to those two central commandments of the Torah that got him into Gehenna. Anyway, the point is, it's clear that for Yeshua, The Torah is not bondage or legalism, but it's life. It's life-giving. The Torah gives life, right? Uh, But only the full Torah gives life. If you look at uh, Luke 11, 42 in this passage, uh, this is in the woes that Yeshua is declaring against the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, so he criticizes the Pharisees for being involved in all this legal minutiae, but they forget two things: justice, which is loving your neighbor and loving God. The two great commandments they miss they they failed to see the forest for all the trees, right so Throughout, throughout Luke, we see these two commandments emphasized as epitomizing what it means to follow Torah and uh, summing up the Torah. And that's what we see in this story of the rich young ruler. Okay, so let's let's go back to uh, this story. The point I want to suggest is not that everyone who wants to follow Yeshua has to abandon their riches. The point is that Yeshua is summoning this man to serve God alone, not mammon, right? To love God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his me'odecha, right? You remember the great commandment, et Adonai levavcha, with all your heart, with all your soul, your nefesh, your life, and u'v'chol with all your... Uh, A lot of translations will say strength. Well, a traditional Jewish understanding of me'odecha is that it's talking about your monetary resources with your money. Uh, So that's the part that this rich guy was lacking. He was not loving God with all his money. And so Yeshua told him, you have to give that up and put God first. The point is that all of us have to be willing to abandon anything that gets in the way of our devotion to God. And for some people, that's wealth, right? For others, uh, it might be family members. For others, it could be uh, whatever, right? Uh, uh, Prestige or our position, our talents, or whatever it may be. All of that has to go and be second place, and God has to take first place. So, uh, at the same time, I, I don't want... Uh, I think we have to be careful not to allow these facts to simply brush away the uncomfortable challenge that Yeshua's teaching offers us about money, right? There, There is still this, this challenge here. Um, it is so easy to be deceived by the love of money. And Yeshua's teaching is, uh, is jarring, right? There, there's something... Uh, that's uh, unsettling about it. And uh, and I think if we com- try to completely eliminate anything that makes us feel uncomfortable in Yeshua's teaching, we're going to miss the point. Uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the body of Messiah does need wealthy people who are fully committed to Yeshua and his kingdom and who use their wealth toward that end. And there's nothing wrong with aspiring to be in that position. There's nothing uh, wrong with being in a position of wealth as as all of us are. Right, Um, but it's also a dangerous position. There are many potential pitfalls that come with wealth, and and I think we have to we have to recognize that and we have to acknowledge God as the owner of all that we have. We we are just stewards, right? And we have to be on guard against the love of money, but that doesn't prevent us from using our money for God's purposes. And, and that's, that's, I think, something that's key. Okay. Uh, we're out of time, so we're going to have to wrap it up with that, but I'll, I'll open it up. Any, any thoughts or questions or, or further insights on any of these things we've been talking about here?
0: I think it's a really important topic um particularly because in in the church for the last, I don't know, probably twenty years, the whole idea of health and wealth is the um, is is showing that um, God is blessing you. So to have that balance that you're talking about, like yes, we are wealthy but what are we doing with our wealth? Um, and should we as believers be saying, if we are very wealthy, then that means God's blessing us. And if we are not as much, does that mean somehow that he's not blessing us? And I, I think there's been some real danger in that over the last probably 20, 25 years.
1: mm mm-hmm yeah obviously there's there's a uh delicate balance here right because uh, you know on the one hand you have uh kind of the monastic ideal where or, or even the gnostic ideal where it's the the material world is bad and uh ha- taking pleasure out of god's good world is somehow evil right uh, the material yeah the, and that's not biblical either, right? But on the other hand, like you said, there's, there's a lot of unbiblical focus in some groups on wealth as the measure for uh, success in spiritual life. And that's, you know, the I mean, these passages go directly against that sort of mentality.
4: I, I really appreciated your, your teaching on these. Uh, parables, Ben, and I think you have a good take on it. I, I mean, and I think Yeshua, you know, all through and another places, he he's just sounding the note that uh, life consists in in something else. Like, don't don't look for it in in wealth. That that's use it, you know, use use wealth. But but life isn't there. It's not it's mm-hmm. not what your um, your life really consists. And so, and and the more you get of it, and the easier it is to get distracted by it and to get deceived by it, and and think that oh, this is what it's about. And I, mean, I think he's really his warning is is very very necessary and and uh, because so many of us uh, see the um, see see the attraction of it, and and I mean there are lots of good uh, rather rather be rich than poor. I mean. For many reasons, but uh, he's pointing out there's pitfalls, and we're so easily uh, deceived and and distracted when by by uh wealth so mm-hmm.
3: yeah that's good. I think to add to that wealth doesn't bring the joy of the Lord that most believers are truly seeking
1: yeah. Yeah, statistically, if you look at um, if there were a way to measure happiness versus wealth, uh, it is not a direct correlation that the more wealth you have, the happier you are. In fact, uh, from what I've heard, it's probably the opposite. (laughs) People who are more wealthy tend to be less happy than people who are less wealthy. So, yeah, which is strange because that's what the, the illusion is that the more, the more you get, the happier you will be. Uh, I mean, that's our whole consumeristic culture is based around that idea. Yeah, so, so yeah, definitely. The, the more wealth you have, the it doesn't make you happier.
0: Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.